see you here. Thank you for coming. And uh, thank you, worship team, for leading us in such a great way. Um, I, I encourage you to move around the, the sanctuary a few times over the weeks to kind of get different perspectives of things. Uh, sometimes I sing back there, sometimes I sing over here, but one of the best spots is up front because you have a choir behind you, and it's, it's quite amazing. Uh, it's enriching. So thank you for this section. Good job. Can't speak to the others, but maybe in the weeks to come, you know, I, I don't know, but, but, but thank you for that. So today we're coming out of Genesis 24. It is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. And uh, we're not going to read it at its entirety, but I'll explain that in just a moment. But we are going to talk about the entirety of the narrative that's happening in chapter 24 um, as we go through it. I want to kind of like set it up and let you see that uh, you see God's promises that are going to be coming out of the text today. And uh, it leans toward what might be considered a love story. And so I know some of you like said, hey, okay, we can follow that. Um, and there's a lot of mystery to it. It's layered, uh, but it has a great picture of what marriage is about. And, and there's something that's really cool to me about, I remember, I remember when I was little, I was learning about Jesus walking on the land and everything. And I, I, th- I thought to myself, it would be really cool to have a time machine and actually go back and walk alongside Jesus, that would be a kind of a cool thing to do, uh, or, or to even been born there in that time to like just see it all unfolding uh, before us. But in 2022, we have the benefit of the New Testament so that as we can read the Old Testament, we can know what's said in the New Testament, and we can see an interpretation that God has always had this big, huge, gigantic plan um, from the very beginning. And, and that's encouraging and validating to who we are when we, when we follow God. But today, you will see a picture of marriage. And speaking of marriage, uh, Kimberly and I, uh, this past week, um, uh, June 2nd, uh, celebrated our 32nd wedding anniversary. Thank you for clapping. I know wholeheartedly that all the applause is for Kimberly. I, I know that's how that works. I remember when I, I first met Kimberly, I met her through a mutual friend and was getting to know her a little bit. And when I finally mustered up the courage to ask her out, um, I, I, I saw her in, on, at, at, we were in college and we had just finished eating in the cafeteria area there and I just kind of walked out with her and uh, we, we got out and I said, uh, would you like to go out to eat? And, uh, you know, she's, I think she maybe even teased and said something along the lines, is this a date? And in my, inside I was going, duh, but um, didn't do that and everything. And so I kind of told her and we kind of worked out some details and everything and then I, I got to the end of it and I said, um, can you drive? I don't have a car. <laughs> so, I know that's kind of a loser move, but I wanted to go out with the girl. So, I just said, hey, I, w- I want to go out with her. So, she ended up, she ended up, uh, she let me drive. Wasn't that very uh, kind of her. She let me drive. And it, I didn't just walk up to her randomly. We knew each other first. So, it's not like she was letting some stranger drive her car off the campus, something like that. But, um, it's been amazing, and uh, we have been learning over the past 32 years what marriage is about, not only with one another and learning one another, but what it is in a reflection of who God is in our lives, the walk that we have before us. Paul speaks of that, and we'll read that text at the end. He speaks of the mystery 
um, that, is in, that is in the marriage relationship and, and how God uh, weaves it together. And the more that I learn about God's Word, the more that I start figuring out that the tapestry is weaved together so beautifully. And if you're walking with Christ, if you're walking biblically in Christ in a relationship with Him, everything that you do is a reflection of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and, and how He is leading us in our lives. And that's what we're going to see out of this, uh, out of the context of the story today, of just how valuable this is. And so we're going to look at this, this story in several different ways. First thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the account as it happened, because that's important. We need to hear what happened. We need to hear the words that were recorded by Moses uh, that God breathed him to be able to share with us. We need to know what happened. We need to know the story. Right? So we need to understand the account. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the example of how it related to the Israelites. If you remember, Moses probably wrote Genesis right before they went into the promised land. And so he is writing this down so that the, the readers can see it, and God has given him the words to say that the, of the story of his plan from the very beginning to where they were in the promised land to be encouraged, and the examples that they would have, the example of Abraham, the example of Isaac, and the example of Rebekah. They're gonna, you're going to see that come out. Then the third thing we're going to look at is the parallel with our salvation. Um, it just kind of watch through this as we're reading the account. You'll start seeing some things that kind of fit into our walk with our Savior today. And then the fourth thing we're going to look at is the focus on the coming kingdom. And that number four is something that, that jumped out at me as I was studying this text that I had never caught before. And I'm excited to be able to share um, kind of some revelation that God gave my heart uh, as I was reading through this as well. So we're just going to dive right in, uh, chapter 24, and we're going to start at verse 1. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, uh, probably around 140 at this point. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had. Now, the servant is not named here, and I believe that's for reason. I believe he could have easily been named, uh, but he's not named here because it's, it's, it is about his faith that he had, but there's a bigger picture going on. Um, they're not wanting us to, to actually focus in on his name per se, although it means something. But if you look back at 15, chapter 15, verse 2, it says, But Abraham said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So many believe, and I do too, that this servant that he's speaking of is Eleazar. It just points to him and several things that it was Eleazar who was originally going to be the one that was going to be the heir of everything because he had no child. And so, um, we go back to the beginning of verse 2. It says, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of, on the, of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So we'll pause there for just a moment and ask the question, why not take a wife from the Canaanites? Well, if you jump back to Genesis 9, if you remember what happened with Noah and Ham and Canaan, um, Noah actually said, curse be Canaan, you will serve forever the, the, the tribe of Ham. And so 
Abraham most likely said, I don't want the wife of my son to come from someone who has a curse on them. Go back to my kindred in my homeland. And then verse 5, it says, the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you come? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Now, there's reason behind that, and then there's also a parallel behind it as well. So, put a star beside verse 6 if you're taking notes, because that's going to really leap out at us later when we talk about how it relates to our salvation. Verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give you this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. He is saying that the angel will go before. In fact, in most cases, when you see God getting ready to do something in Scripture, you see that an angel has gone before him, almost like uh, an assistant to someone who has position and authority. They will, they will be sent ahead of them into the city that they're about to go into to make arrangements, to make sure that the hotel's the way it's supposed to be, to make sure that everything's lined up. And in that kind of way, the angel of the Lord is always announcing and uh, kind of going ahead of him. I'm reminded of the movie Aladdin, uh, you know, where Aladdin is coming into the town and that song, make way for Prince Ali. Okay, sorry. <laughs> if you know, you know, and we'll move on. All right. So, verse, verse 8, it says, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. He says it again. Don't want my son to go back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So, uh, what's this uh, putting your hand under the thigh thing? It's just in today's society, it, it would be incredibly awkward, right? I mean, you know, men don't like to brush up against men. You know, you just try not to get in each other's bubbles and everything. So, what is this O thing? Well, back in that culture, there was a thing of putting your hand underneath the thigh, and it was very picturesque. And it brought you to the point that people's word meant something. In other words, if I told you with a handshake, I promise you, then my word is going to stand. Now we have to have contracts and we have to have legalities and we have those kind of things. But back then it was an oath. And this is kind of what it would have looked like. Abraham would have been seated there in his tent and he would have been talking to the servant who was standing and he would have said, this is what I want you to go and do. And then they break into discussion and the servant asks a few questions so he understands clearly what the, what the ask is is. And then he said, I want you to put your hand under my thigh to swear an oath to me. So the servant would have stepped up to Abraham and he would have slid his hand underneath the, the thigh right here like this as, as Abraham said on it. Now that is kind of like a very intimate way of doing things, but here's what it does. It would have brought the servant and Abraham nose to nose, eye to eye, and forehead to forehead. And it would have most likely been when he put his hand there that Abraham would have reached up and grabbed the back of his neck and held it. And the servant would have grabbed the back of Abraham's neck and they would have pulled their foreheads together. And the servant would have said, looking him straight in the eye, I swear to you an oath, I will do exactly what you're asking me to do. 
He was saying, my word means something. I agree with it. I will go and do it. It was a promise. Abraham could rest in that and be okay with that. Then verse 10, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. This is a thousand miles away, by the way. It's not like he was walking to Troutman. This is a thousand miles away. And in fact, it would be the distance from Peninsula to Dallas, Texas. And uh, so someone actually in the, in the booth came up to me uh, in the last service, and they gave me how long it would actually take to do this. Uh, it's, it's, uh, if you walk 12 hours a day, it would take you 23 days and 19 hours to walk from here to Dallas. Yeah, no thanks, I'll fly. But um, that's the distance now that this servant is traveling back to the homeland to, to come. And then he gets there, verse 11, it says, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when uh, women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. He's, he's, he's showing that faith now that he saw in Abraham. He is, he is bringing that with him, and he's saying, show out, show out for me. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young women to whom I shall let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, underline that, because we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcai, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. We'll pause there for a second. The servant is checking boxes, right? He is, he, is, he is looking, he knows Abraham well, he knows what Abraham's looking for, and he knows what the test had to be that he had to check off to meet the demands of Abraham the father. He was, he's looking into that and he's watching that. Verse 16, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord, and she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. That's a lot of animals, by the way, so it wasn't just this, she poured a little bit of water into the trough. She was probably taking a lots of trips to the well and pouring it, so she's working right? She's working for this, showing humility, showing a servant's heart, showing uh, doing what it takes to serve others, kind of a reflection of Abraham's heart as well. Verse 20, so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. 
Now, Daniel, reading this, says, huh, wonder how much that's worth. So I went and looked it up, and in today's money, the ring would, would be worth $500, and the two bracelets would lean up toward $10,000. So he is offering her just over $10,000 in jewelry. Bling. That's kind of nice, right? Is it, is it, don't, don't you think at that moment she's got a little bit of attention? Like, what is this? You know? And he said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milchai, whom she bore to Nahor. He just checked it off in his mind. He said, she is fitting the bill perfectly. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder. Fodder is just animal feed and room to spend the night. Verse 26, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. And we're going to pause there for a second and tell you that later in Scripture, we learn about Laban as being an opportunist. We learn about him being someone who's like, what's in it for me? And that's what he's all about. And you say, well, that's kind of a quick judgment. No, look at the very next verse. And this is the reason he brought it out. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm, and he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. What he's saying is, is Laban, couldn't you just see now? And by the way, the ring was most likely a nose ring. And so uh, Rebekah would have put that nose ring on, and she would have had the bracelets on, and she would have walked into her tent. <sighs> right? And the family goes, what are you wearing? And where did you get it? And Laban, who has the dollar signs flipping in his eyes, goes, now tell me what's going on here. And then he's excited and he runs out to meet him. Verse 32. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. You need to hold on to that for a few moments. Number one, the servant was about business. He knew that the deal had not been done yet. He knew that God was showing favor, and he wasn't going to tarry on that, and he wasn't going to treat himself until he had done what the, what the uh, master had sent him to do, right? You need to hold on to that when you start connecting the dots in a few moments of what the bigger picture is happening here. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. 
And we're going to stop there, and we're going to jump on down in the text for a few moments because the Scripture begins to repeat itself. He does go on in to say that I've been tasked to find a wife for Isaac. So they know this in there, but why repeat it? Why would Scripture repeat it? It's not just to pad the book to make it a little, look a little bit bigger like we do when we're writing research papers, right? You know, oh, it's got to be a 12 font. Well, if I do 12 font at a uh, space and a half, you know, then I can get the 10 pages. It's not like that at all. It's not why Scripture repeats itself. Scripture repeats itself to make sure that the coding of the story is full and complete. This is how I would, an illustration that I would use. How many of you have painted a room before? You've ever painted a room? Many people in here. So let me ask you a question. When you went in and painted the room, did you put paint on your roller and just roll it up and down on the wall and say, done, out of here. It's the new color now. Well, you could do that. But there's a thing called cutting in the edges, um, which is the part that I don't like at all. But anyway, you go in and you cut in the edges and you make sure all the edges are cut in before you roll it. And then you roll it once and you might even have to put on a second coat so that you have a good quality paint job that's going to last. That's what's happening in the scripture text here and why it's repeating itself. Call it cutting in and a second coat. Why is it so important? Because you're seeing the establishment of two things, the continued fulfillment of the promise that God gave, but the beginning of the line of the Messiah. What, what Moses is doing here, he's saying, don't miss this account of what God is doing. He's working in the middle of it. This is not just some story that I'm telling you, oh, look how God did things. This was God always involved in it, always working in it, making it happen so that when it gets to the Christ, there's no like, how do we get here? We can go all the way back to our origins and say God had that plan from the beginning, and that's why it does that. So we're not going to read all that. I probably could have just read it all again with that amount of time that it took to explain that, but we won't do that. So let's jump to verse 50. It says, Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Now, it says the thing. Um, it's not talking about the servant. You know, they're not calling the servant a name. They're talking about the situation. A, a, a word uh, could just also be translated the situation. This situation has come from the Lord, and they're trying to remain kind of neutral in it and say, How, who are we to speak bad or good of this, uh, which indicates that they were already in their minds thinking some bad, right? How can we speak good or bad of this? Meaning that they may have had a few things in their mind that they could have been saying, behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. I'm going to pause there for just a second and relate that to us. They did right. They did exactly right there. God spoke, they understood, and they responded in the positive. Let God have his way, do his way. And here's what I'm thinking of. Of times in my life, I might wake up in the morning and the, the morning is quiet. There's no distractions. Um, there's just kind of like, I'm just kind of in my own bubble. I'm reading scripture and, and, and I feel like that God impresses upon my heart something that may be a little bit out of the ordinary, but something that I need to go do. And I commit in my heart right at that moment, I'm going to go do it. But then what happens? The day. The day starts happening 
things start getting all mixed up. And then later in the day, when I remember what God said, go do, I look at it with the frustrations of the day, and I start thinking, well, that was kind of corny. And that's what we do. They did right in saying, go and take, but you'll see what happens uh, here in just a moment. Where did I leave off? Uh, verse 51? Okay, let's go to verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. Does that sound like us, that crisis of belief of what's really happening? I mean, we make promises, but when it comes time to actually cross that line or cross that hurdle, we're kind of like, well, let's give it a little time. I feel like God may be saying doing this, let's, let's pray about it a little longer, right? Isn't that what we do? And that's kind of what's going on here. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has proposed my, uh, prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She replied, I will go. You understand there that they just put the power of decision into Rebekah's hand. That's going to be important as we unfold this even further. Verse 59 so they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her. Now, these words we're about to read are very reflective of the words that were said to Abraham. The Israelites would have picked up on this and said, this is a continuation of the promise. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate, possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed this, the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Berhai, let me try that again, Berlaharoi, and was dwelling in the Nagab. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and, she, and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, kind of a showing of humility, um, and she covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So that's the account of what happens in Genesis 24. That's so you know the storyline. You can follow the storyline of what happened. But now let's start diving in to the richness of the text and, and see some things that God teaches us today in 2022. So we have the account as it happened. Then next we have the example as it related to the Israelites, what they would have gained from hearing this story when it was read. Um, remember, they're on the verge of going into the promised land. The first thing they would have picked up was the heart of the father. 
the heart of the father. The, the Abraham, his concern was that his son Isaac would have a wife. And the heart of Abraham, seeing the promise fulfilled, would have translated to the Israelite readers that the heavenly father also had a heart to see the promise fulfilled. How is that encouraging? They just spent years in the wilderness, and they're about to go into the promised land, and they're seeing that the heart of Abraham was that the, that the promise moves forward. It is saying to the Israelites, we too, a chosen people, need to do what it takes and have a heart to see the promise fulfilled. But then next you have the faith of the servant. Um, the servant Eliezer showed a great faith to go to a foreign land, which was, a not, which was not a part of the promised land right? The servant was living in the promised land that God had promised, and he was asked to leave the promised land and go to a foreign land that he may or may not have known of and get a wife for Isaac and bring her back. But you need to understand the moving of God's hand here. This is something that is incredibly important for us to grab. I ask you to underline um, before before he finished speaking in his prayer for Rebecca to come out, before he finished speaking… Rebecca was walking out. So the question is, was it the faith of the servant and his prayer that caused Rebecca to walk out and do exactly what his prayer was, or more likely, was it the fact that the Spirit gave the prayer to the servant to pray because he knew what was coming? so that the servant would clearly see, I prayed that, and it happened. See, we tend to, as believers today, think that we have the power to move things based on our words. If we pray a prayer and a miracle happens, it's because the Spirit is in the middle of it, and He most likely gave us the prayer to pray right? We're praying in spirit and truth. I am interjecting that what was happening was the angel of the Lord went ahead, began to prepare things. When the servant showed up and was worshiping God, the Spirit gave him the prayer to pray, and Rebecca was already on the move to move out there, not knowing that her humbleness and her servant attitude was going to lead her to a marriage, and the Spirit brought them together. It's the moving of the Spirit. Yes, the servant had great faith, and we're going to pull that out here in just a second, but it was the moving of the Spirit that did this. It was God the Father causing this to happen. Well, you have to know the servant, Eliezer. He had a lot of faith to travel a thousand miles with a caravan to find a wife for Isaac. God's promise and his angel was already working ahead of the journey, and he was acknowledging that. But there's something else I want to point out here. The servant did not ask for some over-the-top, over-the-moon miracle to happen. Just in the flow of life, the walk of life, the servant just prayed, as life is going on, can you guide me? And here's what we do as believers today. We pray for an over-the-top firework explosion, a miracle to happen, and then when it doesn't happen, we get frustrated with God because that didn't happen, and we think, well, God's not listening to us. And you know what we do when we have that kind of attitude in our heart? We have forgotten that life itself is a miracle. 
by the fact that we're sitting in here today breathing and communing with one another in worship of the Father is in of itself a miracle. We tend to forget and not celebrate enough in our daily lives the fact that Jesus, who came and walked on the earth and gave his life, died and defeated death with death, is a miracle. By me being up here talking to you about the Word of God is a miracle. We have miracles in front of us every single day. Here's my point. We need to pray that the Spirit of God leads us and guides us in our everyday life, in just the common things that we're doing, the things that may seem simple that's kind of in the flow. Rebecca came out every evening to grab water and to take it back into the family. It was just in the normal flow, and in that, by the guidance of the Spirit, that normal everyday thing had a divine appointment. But then we have the call of the bride. The servant was actually courting Rebecca on Isaac's behalf, right? It was kind of a cultural thing to do. It wasn't really out of the norm, but he was, he was actually courting her and saying, this is the story. I'm going to bear witness to you who Isaac is, and I'm going to give a testimony of who Isaac is, and, and, and I feel like God's saying, you're the one. The Israelites would have been extremely encouraged by that understanding that moving into the promised land was in their control, and they could say, yes, we're going in, or no, we're not, right? And so they had that choice. That the, the example of Rebekah would have been a strong example for the Israelites at the time. So we have the account as it happened. We have the example as it related to the Israelites. Now we have the parallel with our salvation. This is where this Old Testament book that was written back here comes to life for us right here. Listen to this. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew 22, verse 2. This is what it says. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Parallel, starting to come in of how it matches our salvation. Um, Adrian Rogers, uh, a pastor in Tennessee, you may have heard his name before, many of you probably have, preached a message on Genesis 24, and this is what he said that I thought was really good. He said, what is the concern of the heavenly father? If Isaac is a picture of the Lord Jesus, then what would be the concern of the heavenly father in our salvation? It is that his son, the Lord Jesus, have a bride. And so the heavenly father longs that there be a bride for the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus longs for his bride. In Ephesians, the church is called the fullness of Jesus. We're connected to Christ in the picture of the bride and the groom. And so you have Abraham, the father, who could be a picture of God, who is concerned about a bride for his son. You have Isaac, who is a picture of Christ. How, how so? Well, he was a child of promise. He was born from a miracle. He carried the wood on his back to become the father's sacrifice. And he is marrying a bride chosen by the servant by faith in God. So you have Abraham representing the father, you have Isaac representing the son, and then you have Eleazar. 
Do you know that the name Eleazar translated literally means the helper of God? These are the words of Jesus, John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. What was Eleazar doing? He was sent from the Father to go bear witness about the Son. Cool connection. It gets better. So God the Father has put into power the Spirit of God to go into a land that is not the promised land. That's where we live right now. We're not living in the promised land. Our kingdom is not here. And the Spirit of God has been sent by the Father to come and bear witness of the Son to our hearts and asking us to become the bride to the Son of the Father. He is offering marriage. It's a little different in the fact that it's spiritually speaking, but the parallel is there. So you have the account as it happened, the example as it related to the Israelites, the parallel with our salvation, and then finally you have the focus on the coming kingdom. Look at what this text does as we see the picture of the coming of the kingdom of God. Let's go back to Genesis 24, starting at verse 64, and we'll recap. I'll read through this again so we can recap in our minds. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. <laughs> when the trumpet sounds, you better believe that my eyes are going to be lifting up, right? And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself humbly. She, she wanted to meet him humbly. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Who's, who's, who's bearing witness for who now? The Spirit of God comes down and bears witness to the Son. We give our lives to Christ, and when we come before the Father, the Spirit bears witness of us to the Father. It's powerful stuff, and to the Son. Then Isaac, uh, and, and let's see, yeah. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Listen, if you are not a believer of Christ, but the dots are starting to connect for you that Christ is someone you need, I want you to understand that it's not my words that's convincing you. It is the testimony of the Spirit of God that is beginning to move in your presence and speak to your heart so that you are drawn to the groom, the Son. So He has come. He, he, is, he is courting you. He is trying to cause things in your life that would make you look to God that you need the Savior, and He is inviting you to become that bride. And if you've already given your life to Christ, then we are the bride of Christ. Listen, 1 Thessalonians 4 speaks to this. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. I told you back at the very beginning um, to mark the word and remember the word when the Father said, no, don't let the Son go to the land. 
but you bring them back. And now you've got Isaac who's standing at the edge of the field. You think about it. If it probably took um, probably, I'm just going to throw it out there, two to three months for uh, them to walk to get the bride, two to three months to walk back. So it's been anywhere from four to six months now that Isaac knows that the servant has gone to get him a bride, and he is waiting. That's why he's at the edge of the field. He knows the timing should be pretty close, and he's looking, and he's at the edge of the field, and he's looking out there, and he sees the potential bride coming his way. And then the servant bears witness to the son, this is the one, and this is how God did it, and he moves on that. And it says in verse 17 of uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Christ is at the edge of heaven, waiting for the trumpet to sound. And when that trumpet sounds, his eyes will look to us, our eyes will look up to him, and we will meet him in the air. It's the promise of the coming of the kingdom. That's why I say we're fortunate to have the New Testament to see what God was doing all the way back there with Isaac and Rebekah. He was painting a tapestry of his truths, of his love, that his promises stand, and that we have a kingdom that we focus our eyes on that is to come. Doesn't that make this world pale in comparison to what is coming. And I hear people say, you know, I just cannot imagine, I just can't imagine eternity of worshiping God. I mean, that just sounds kind of like, I mean, all the time? You know why we have struggle with that? It's because we don't understand the 100% complete love and joy of Christ. Here's my point. We all long to be loved. And when that falls short with what's around us, we go outside it. We all desire to be valued And when that falls short, we look for places to where we can be valued. We all desire to be wanted. And when you step into heaven, into the presence of God, and and, and my sin is no longer clouding that love and that that value, I'm, I'm actually seeing myself before the heavenly Father and Christ and the Spirit there as I worship them. I am one time and forever, eternity, finally satisfied with the love and the value that I have always craved. Yeah, I'll take an eternity of that. Because doesn't life let us down? Doesn't life hurt? And Jesus knows this. And so he came and he gave his life to purchase us as his bride. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father, probably with one foot back like this, waiting for the trumpet to sound. That's the love we walk in. But one final note. 
picture that you see between Abraham, Isaac, Eleazar, and Rebekah is the picture that the world is supposed to see through our marriages. The relationship that we have with our spouse is supposed to be a reflective picture of excitement and joy that I just described as Jesus can't wait to see the bride and the bride can't wait to see Jesus. That's the picture that the world should see in the marriage covenant relationship that we have with one another. And in our fallen desire, our fallen sinfulness, we fall short of that often because we're in the game for ourselves. And we so need to surrender completely to the love of Christ so that he can make up the difference and he can take one spouse's hand and another spouse's hand and he can bring those together and he can make it be a reflection of his joy to the world. This is why from the very beginning of time In the garden, the marriage relationship was attacked because it's a picture of God fulfilling his promise. This is why in today's culture, the marriage relationship is constantly under attack. And not just from the outside, but from within. Remember at the beginning of time when the sin happened, he said, because of this sin, your relationship's broken and you're going to struggle. It's because of our sin that we struggle in our relationships. And that's from the very beginning of time. So the difficulty that we have in our relationships, we have to own ourselves. So that first attack comes from within. The second attack comes from the culture that wants to cheapen the true account of God's story, that wants us to not see the examples that are in the Bible, that wants to challenge our salvation and cheapen it to be something that it's not, and to say that we don't necessarily need it and we can do whatever we want to do, and we don't have to fall into the auspices of what Scripture says anymore because it's an old book, and distract us from the coming kingdom. Church, we walk in hope because Jesus has purchased us and he's coming again to take us into his tent and to love us forever. Let's pray. Father, there's not one single thing that I have ever done that is deserving of your grace and your mercy. I stand before you selfish. I stand before you sinful. I stand before you broken. And it serves as a reminder of my need for a Savior. Thank you for loving me there. 
And thank you for loving me to the next thing of growth in you. I see clearly through the text that you were working on my behalf from the very creation of the world. And not just me, but everyone that's listening to my voice right now, you've been working from the very beginning of time to redeem people to yourself. It's our own selfishness, our own uh, desires, our own vision in life without you that has caused you to need to do this. But in your wisdom, you knew this. So help me to understand this week, Father, that not only my marriage relationship should reflect the communion that I have with you through your son, but my individual life should reflect the grace and the mercy that has been extended to me. Forgive me where I've fallen short. Forgive me where I've failed you. Forgive me where I have gone back on the promises I made to you. Help me to have the strength and the faith, the courage, the integrity to swear an oath to you, to seek your face daily like Eleazar did. So, Father, for the hearts in this room that are hurting, that are pounding, that are, that are wanting, through your witness, the Spirit testify to the love of Christ and speak to our hearts that we may be molded and, and guided and that your name would be risen above all names in our hearts, in our words, in our lives, in our work, in our play. May you be glorified and honored. For it's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.